Good morning. My name is Quinn, and I am a, a deacon uh, serving here at the church. And um, Josh, it, Pastor Josh, is away uh, this week, so he asked me to continue um, preaching in Matthew, and we are in chapter seven. So appreciate your prayers this morning, and hopefully um, I can share something that's uh, helpful and, and edifying to to the church. So appearances can be deceiving. Things are not always as they seem. We've all probably no doubt heard similar warnings from our parents, or our friends, or our coworkers, And it's likely you've also experienced that truth firsthand um, and experienced the wisdom behind those sayings. And so when I was preparing for the sermon, I was reminded of a simple childhood experience that reinforces uh, those adages. Um, I grew up in a small town, and we spent a good amount of our time playing outdoors. And I remember coming across an apple tree um, with small, perfectly round green apples. And at the time, I'm not as big a fan now, but was big into Granny Smith apples and the kind of the sour uh, taste of, of those apples and thought that's what would I be experiencing when I tried uh, these, these apples. And uh, on the contrary, when I, when I took a bite, I quickly found that these apples were rancidly sour. And so it was, in fact, a, a crab apple tree, which is uh, typically ornamental, not, not edible. So um, without that knowledge of that fact, you would have simply you know, thought you had just gotten a bad apple and, and uh, taken another and, and taken another bite, which is when the, the other saying about doing the same thing twice, expecting different results, would, would come into play. And I think that's what I did because I recall tasting uh, this taste more than, more than once, only to find the second apple just as unpleasant as the first. Um, so soon the truth of the, of the substance of that fruit became clear to me. Um, it became the kind of apple that you might bite into once with your friends to get, a, to get a sour buzz, but only quickly to cast it away, or more often used as a projectile to be thrown at your friends or brothers, or I think also as an exploding baseball. I remember pitching these up in the backyard and, and hitting them with a bat uh, with my brothers just to, uh, to have some fun. So the fruit, at first appearance, looked beautiful and delicious. It looked edible, but further inspection found that it was not at all what it seemed to be. Rather than being a nourishing food to be savored, it was an unpalatable fruit to be left to rot. And so as we're nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which is you know, Jesus' longest continuous section of teaching in the New Testament, and he has taught us widely on the, on the principles, uh, core principles of living as, as his disciple, um, and what it looks like to flourish in everyday life under his lordship. Uh, and now at the end, Jesus is going to very purposefully conclude with a series of warnings using binary oppositions or, or two contrasting things. Last week we saw the image of the two gates, right? The one that is narrow and the one that is broad. One leading to life, the other leading to destruction. In this passage, Jesus is going to compare two kinds of prophets or teachers and two kinds of disciples using the image of two kinds of trees, bearing two kinds of fruit. Jesus is going to remind us that appearances can be deceiving. And unlike my harmless apple tree story, this deception from false prophets and disciples is deadly and has eternal consequences. His warning is of utmost importance for his listeners and to us as his disciples and as a church. So I'll reread the passage here if you... Um, I'm going to be in the ESV, so I apologize. I won't match the version that you have out there in the Pew Bibles. But if you go to 1506, um, we can uh, read this passage again and then pray and, and get into the text. 
Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you'll recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, when are the kingdom of heaven? But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, great mighty works in your name? And I will then declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and ask, Lord, that you would enlighten us with your word. Lord, I pray that you would um, renew our minds and hearts as we look um, what Jesus has to say in this passage. Um, That we would be on guard, Lord, with um, your word and the gospel against false teaching and, and false disciples. Bless our time this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the main point of this sermon, if you're looking for the main point, is that Jesus calls his people to watch for false teachers and disciples through his promises and the power of the gospel. And we're going to unpack that in three points. In the, in the, like a true, try to be a true Baptist this morning and use three uh, iterative, reiterative points. But one is the danger, our discernment is necessary. The protection, our discernment is possible. And the third point is the judgment, our discernment vindicated. So those are going to be the three points that we're going to look at as we unpack this main point, that Jesus calls his people to watch for false teachers and disciples through his promises and the power of the gospel. So first, the danger. We need to look at the danger, and, and we can see that right away in Jesus' uh, first warning in, in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. The danger here warned is false prophets. To understand this warning, we must first ask, what is a prophet? So the common use of that word often refers to someone who can foretell the future or um, someone that um, knows of the things to come. But However, we can judge from, from the Old Testament, as Jesus' Jesus's audience would have, that a prophet is more broadly uh, known as a spokesperson or a speaker on behalf of God. Um, a prophet is entrusted with a message from God, entrusted with his divine word to be shared with God's people. Thus, Jesus' warning extends to those we would call today teachers or anyone claiming to speak truth for God. And I think it's really important for us uh, to see this warning applying to teachers, as I suspect very few of us feel very threatened by folks claiming to be prophets in the traditional sense. Um, claiming to know the future, or running around claiming to be speaking new divine revelation on behalf of God. You know, not many of us are likely to be convinced when, say, a Mormon knocks on your door to share with you another testament of Jesus Christ, um, proclaiming that we should accept new divine revelation that was buried and revealed by an angel in Manchester, New York. Um, That's probably not what many of us are going to find very persuasive. We'll typically try to end that conversation um, pretty abruptly and politely as possible and go on with our day. Um, you know, people claiming direct, special, add-to-your-Bible revelation from God, likely for many of us, and and maybe some of us have struggled with that, but I would say for many of us, I would guess, is not, um, doesn't feel like a real danger. But what about false teaching? 
What about those subtle false truths that seek to slip into our hearts and minds undetected? What about those alluring falsehoods, while contrary to the gospel, still appeal to our fallen condition? Jesus' exhortation to be on guard for false prophets and their false message and his description of them as those who come in sheep's clothing but are inside ravenous wolves fully applies here. Uh, John Calvin, a, um, a uh, now dead, long ago dead theologian um, and pastor, wrote, um, men have such a strong propensity to falsehood that they not only have a natural desire to be deceived, but each individual appears ingenious at de- in deceiving himself. This is you know, part of our fallen condition. And like a wolf disguised as a docile, innocent, harmless sheep, these false truths and teachers can appear to us as orthodox or as morally upright or as enlightening or emotionally satisfying. For example, in my own life, I've needed the power of the gospel to protect against the false truth of works righteousness. This idea that you can merit God's favor or your justification in some way solely by your good works. I was raised in a religious tradition where we believed one could be saved by Jesus only to lose their salvation later in life if they did not keep careful watch over their soul. It was subtle because we'd often give lip service to it, that, um, this idea that you know, Jesus, obviously Jesus is alone who saves us and you know, we're not saved by our good deeds, yet lurking under the sheepskin of that idea was the sinister and menacing false gospel. I remember saying that I could imagine, I couldn't imagine choosing to forsake God later in life, yet I could not not believe that you know, my salvation was you know, somehow able to be lost, or was, I couldn't believe that it was irrevocable and that I couldn't fall away from God's grace. And this view even seemed, at the time, you know, pious and, and right to me, um, as I believed that anyone who thought that they could lose their salvation would just presume upon God's forgiveness and thus live however sinfully they wanted and, and shame the name of Christ. Um, the scripture could even be used, misused, um, to make this case. You know, there's biblical warnings about falling away and uh, exhortations about examining or testing oneself to see that you're in the faith. And so this falsehood could even seem right and biblical uh, to me. But far from being life-giving, this false gospel of works righteousness cultivated either sinful fear or sinful pride, depending, or self-righteous pride, depending on how I was you know, performing that week as a Christian. Um, and thus it robbed me of the joy of seeing God as a sovereign, loving, heavenly Father who sought me out for salvation, but also protects and keeps me in the palm of his hand. I miss seeing the great truths of the gospel, that we were sinners, dead in our sin, and separated from God, saved and preserved by grace alone through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, and that, was, and that it was a 100% gift of God, uh, not of my works. And I miss seeing how these lavish gospel truths actually encourage and cultivate good works as we experience them. So this subtle, appealing falsehood of works righteousness so prevalent in, in American Christianity today did great damage to my soul, and it still is a great threat for me to keep, keep watch over. It's deceitful. It, it looks, even looked pious. It looked like it was from God's word, and, and, but in reality, it was, it was against the gospel. So what about you? What false teaching appeals to your fallen condition? Jesus is warning all of us that they exist and that their appearances are deceiving. By by nature, they will look appealing to us. At first glance, these false truths and their teachers will seem innocent, even desirable. 
Jesus remarks later in Matthew's gospel that many false Christs and false prophets will arise and lead many astray, that they will be successful in leading many astray. Likewise, the apostle Peter tells his Christian readers, but false prophets also arose among the Israelite people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will just secretly bring in destructive heresies. They'll, they'll secretly bring in teachings that are, that are destructive to our souls. In 1 John, we're exhorted, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. These passages highlight that false teachers are real, they are dangerous and numerous. Our discernment is necessary. It's commanded. We must keep close watch over our hearts. So again, ask yourself, what false truths appeal to my heart? The main threats may look different for each one of us as the falsehoods we find appealing often are influenced by our, by our upbringing or our culture or our family or our life experience or even our personality. But, but rest assured that they do exist. Perhaps it's a loosening of the biblical sexual ethics that maybe Jesus or Paul didn't really mean what Christians have thought that they have met over the centuries and, and that maybe on matters of sexuality um, our interpretation is not very accurate. Or maybe it's challenges to the authority of the Bible. Like, what if the Bible really, you know, was still God's word, but wasn't completely infallible, but contained errors to be disregarded if it's not compatible with social norms or the latest scientific thinking? Maybe it's the temptation to loosen or let go of biblical truths so you can feel better emotionally. I've struggled with this. Like revising or eliminating the doctrine of hell. Or perhaps embracing universalism, the idea that everyone, everyone will go to heaven because you can't accept that a good God would send people to hell. It's emotionally satisfying for us to, to, to believe something like that. Or perhaps it's a false gospel of easy believism, that Jesus exists simply to save you from eternal consequences so you can continue to live like the world with no regard to his call as disciples or to obey his good commands. Or the prosperity gospel that tells you that Jesus exists to help you achieve the American dream. Um, of wealth and good health, of no experience of sacrifice or suffering um, of the, for the sake of the gospel. Whatever your temptation is, and, I, and there's many more that could be listed, and maybe none of those have ever been that appealing to you, but whatever they, your temptation is uh, to false belief, Jesus is telling us to look out, to beware, to be on guard. We must see that this danger is real and that our discernment as disciples is, is necessary to avoid deception. So that's the danger. So what about the protection? And the good news is that our, our discernment is possible. And we look in verse 16, Jesus says, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So this is, this is really good news. Jesus is telling us that as his disciples, we will recognize these false teachers. Our discernment of their true nature as ravenous wolves and enemies of the true gospel is possible. And using the image of a fruit tree, Jesus tells us that we will know them by their fruits. They may appear harmless at first, but if you look closer with discernment, it will be clear that the bad fruit they bear is evidence of a bad root. Is evidence that they're not rooted in the truth of the life-giving gospel. Jesus says that by their very nature, these false teachers will not produce the kind of fruit 
that's consistent with one whose heart has been changed by the gospel. This is why he asked rhetorically, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The answer is no, of course not, right? The grapes are produced from a grapevine. You know, figs come from a fig tree. I don't know if I'd be able to recognize one, but it comes from a fig tree. While thorn bushes produce thorns and thistles, you know, produce thistles. So the produce of the tree reveals the nature and health of that tree. A healthy or good tree will bear good fruit. Indeed, it cannot bear bad fruit, according to Jesus. And likewise, a diseased or bad tree will bear bad fruit. It cannot bear good fruit. The fruit reveals the root. And if you go to John 15, verse 5, and that's 1676, I believe, in the Pew Bibles, Jesus pushes this... um, point a little further with a a similar garden analogy or fruit analogy. So John 15, verse 5. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So Jesus explicitly says in here in verse 5, I am the true vine. To be a good tree, you must abide and trust in me alone for both salvation and and for your, your sanctification, that is to be made more like Jesus and to bear fruit. Apart from him, we cannot bear true good fruit. We must abide in him, and he and his word must abide in us if we are to bear fruit and so prove to be his disciples. So what does good fruit look like? So we know that to be to, the evidence of a true disciple or a true teacher is to bear is the fruit. Um, so what, is the, what does good fruit look like? And so one could look at the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5 that talks about the characteristics of a true Christian and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. Or we could even look earlier in the Sermon on the Mount on Jesus's, at Jesus' Beatitudes um, or many of his moral teachings in Matthew um, that, that show uh, what it looks like to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ that's contrary um, to our nature as, as fallen people. But in the final analysis, the ultimate fruit is repentance and trust in the one and only Jesus of Nazareth, as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. Trusting in him alone for forgiveness of our sins and for the right standing before God the Father. Believing that he is who he claimed to be, our Savior, our King, and our Lord. A false teacher will not bear that fruit. Yes, it may look like it at first glance, but closer inspection will quickly show that they are counterfeit and that their teachings are not rooted in Christ and the good news of his death and resurrection. It will be evidenced by how their teaching affects the people that they lead. This is the root of the matter, pardon the pun. 
Had to get that in there. <laughs> so that is why the Apostle Paul says so boldly to the Galatian church, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, or the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. Paul is saying, even if I come back to you as an apostle, or even if an angel from heaven comes to you and teaches you a gospel counter to the gospel that I taught you, do not follow them. Um, let them be accursed. Scripture tells us to take every thought captive to obey Christ, and that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. By prayerfully seeking the Holy Spirit's guidance and discernment and renewal of our hearts and minds by the Scriptures, we will be equipped to detect false teachers in the teaching that would lead us astray from the freedom of the gospel. This is a sure promise of God. Jesus tells us that we will recognize them by their fruits. So we've seen the danger, how our discernment is necessary. We've seen the protection on how our discernment is possible. Now lastly, we need to consider the judgment, our discernment vindicated. Christ has commanded his disciples to be on guard and has promised that they will recognize false teachers by their fruits. He concludes by promising that God will ultimately judge false teachers and false disciples. In verse 19, he says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So there will be a day of reckoning for false teachers. They may mislead many people away from the truth of the gospel or cause Christians to stumble and lose sight of the joy of their salvation but they will not stand in the judgment. God knows their root has no place in him. They will be uprooted and thrown into the fire. It is clear in, the day, in that day that they had no part of Christ. It will be clear in that day. Thus, even if we are face hostility or rejection for not following false teachers and, and being a minority that opposes false teaching contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can take hope in the promise that God will make all things right, that our discernment will be vindicated. And this is good news. Um, I remember being in India and seeing the rampant effects of false teaching. We, we backpacked through India for a kind of a two-week mission trip going from village to village. And I just remember being struck by the rampant effects of false teaching that was, that was exported to their country from, from the U.S., there was a TV channel there that um, kept it piping in around the clock, 24 hours a day, um, deception and falsehood disguised as Christianity. And I remember seeing how these poor people who had very little access to sound teaching were misled by fake signs and wonders um, that accompanied fake counterfeit gospels in conflict with the Word of God. These teachers brought spiritual bondage, and even worse, they did it knowingly for money, promising a better life. And I recall very vividly talking to, a, to an old man um, named Joseph. I don't know what his Indian name was, but I remember him mentioning a friend who had sent money to one of these teachers so that his little girl could be healed. And this man told me that the money, the little money was sent back to him with a letter stating that he needed to have more faith and send more money. I think it is biblical that a part of your heart is comforted and rejoices knowing that there's a judgment coming for such teachers who prey on the poor selling spiritual darkness and falsehood. A day is coming where they will give an answer for being a wolf in sheep's clothing. God will not be mocked. He will judge justly and rightly. 
However, as Jesus continues, we see that God will not only judge false teachers, but also judge false disciples. In verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who will do, does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So we spent most of our time this morning looking at two kinds of prophets or teachers, the true and the false. But Jesus warns his audience that there's also two kinds of disciples, the true and the false. Many of the truths about false prophets also apply to false disciples. By first appearance, they may appear to have the root of the matter in them. They spoke of the Lord personally, intimately, as the address, Lord, Lord, it, it, it indicates a, a term of endearment, a term of intimacy. They, they're claiming to have a very close, intimate relationship with the Lord. They apparently prophesied. They cast out demons. They did mighty works, all in the name of the Lord. But on closer inspection, the Lord declares them to be workers of lawlessness. Like the false prophets, they, rec- they are recognized by the fruits The true fruit was not there because the gospel root was not there. All their good works are considered works of lawlessness because they were not rooted in repentance and trust in Jesus Christ. This warning reminds us that our claims, it's not our claims or our feelings or even miraculous works or good deeds as disciples that ultimately matter, but sincere obedience to the Father that flows naturally, naturally, from faith in Jesus Christ. This is a sober reminder to all of us that our hope must be in Christ. We are to abide in him as the true vine. Only then are we true disciples. Neither our feelings or our knowledge of doctrine or of the Bible make us true Christians, only saving faith in Jesus Christ. This faith is a gift from God that changes us from the inside out and will result in true fruit. Even if you feel weak and feeble in your faith, though, take heart. It isn't the strength of your faith that matters. It is the object of your faith. We are saved by trusting in Jesus, not by how strong our faith is. As as it has been said, faith is simply the hand that receives what Jesus offers. So if this passage troubles you, and you fear hearing, depart from me, I never knew you, Turn and receive from Jesus the salvation that only he can provide. Turn to Jesus as the only way for you to be made right with God your Father and to be forgiven and united in fellowship with him, the good Father. So we've discussed you know, several points of application throughout the sermon, but there's some concluding thoughts for us as a church family. You know, what would it look like for us to all be on guard for false teaching that would lead us astray? What would it look like for us to trust in the promises of Jesus that we will recognize false prophets and disciples by their fruits, using the word of God and his Holy Spirit as our sure guide? Maybe it looks like prioritizing time this week to prayerfully consider and ask God to reveal what false gospels or truths you have been tempted to believe, and then share them with a brother and sister to, um, so they can speak truth to you and be in prayer for you. Maybe it looks like carving out purposeful time to rinse and renew your mind in the truths of the Scripture so you can better be on guard against false teaching. And just imagine, you know, for a second, if all of us were on guard for this and, and what freedom there would be and flourishing would there be with the gospel breaking down strongholds in your heart and in my heart 
um, breaking down the falsehoods that, that can come up in a congregation, and imagine what unity and fellowship there we would experience together as the idols of our culture and our heart fell before King Jesus, allowing for the fruits of the Spirit to move freely um, and grow freely from our branches. Then perhaps, you know, more trees in our community would take root, hear sound teaching, and become true disciples. So in conclusion, let us pray together that this would be so. Let us be mindful of the danger, the protection, and the judgment. Jesus calls his disciples to watch for false teachers and disciples. Let us be watchful and hopeful together. Together, believing the promises of God and believing in the power of the, of the gospel to overcome teaching opposed to our great hope. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the gift of Christ, um, that he is our